Who are we? You sure you want to know? We're your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts, Sean and Peter. And in this episode of our Sam Raimi Spider-Man podcast, we're going to be talking about a Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. Boy, that multiverse sure is crazy. everyone. As the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man might say as he was showing up to a Thanksgiving dinner after grabbing a can of cranberry sauce, or as the Tom Holland Spider-Man might say as he was showing up to a fight after grabbing Captain America's shield. <laughs> Just a little inter-franchise symmetry right there to start off the show. But another thing that we should start off with uh, should be a big spoiler warning, because usually on the show we're talking about films that came out in the 2000s. But this episode is about a film released much more recently. We are talking about Spider-Man No Way Home, directed by John Watts and written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, who also wrote Far From Home and uh, co-wrote Homecoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is kind of a special treat because uh, Peter and I started planning this podcast um, over a year ago, and it's just, it's really cool that we're mainly talking about movies that came out so long ago, but now we're able to talk about a movie that's very, very current. Yeah. Um, and I think that's such a special treat for us, Peter, that we get to really see you know, the movies that were a big part of our childhood now merge with movies that are you know a big part of our present, too. And yeah. you know, something that we enjoy today, uh, the Tom Holland Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, this movie was a special treat. Absolutely. You know, not directed by Sam Raimi, of course, but, you know, it still falls under our mission of discussing the Sam Raimi Spider-Man franchise because it has... Not only the return of, you know, several characters from that franchise, but like a substantial return of characters from that yeah. franchise. Oh, yeah. Not just uh, not just brief cameos, but I mean, real substantial, important plot you know, roles uh, for the movie here. So, yes, definitely quite a bit to sink our teeth into as we uh, dissect this movie. And as the name of the show states, no matter whether we're in the Raimi-verse or the Watts-verse, there is so much to tell. So this is going to be another two-part episode, hot on the heels of another two-parter all about the Green Goblin. So naturally, the first episode of our No Way Home two-parter should also focus on the <laughs> Green Goblin. You just cannot get enough of the Green Goblin discussion, can you, Sean? I, I can't help myself. I really can't. <laughs> I'm just a glutton for the Green Goblin. <laughs> he is extremely cool. It is nice to check in again on our old nemesis, Norman, see what dastardly doings he's been up to lately. But before we get into that, I think we should start off with our initial reaction seeing it. Like, we saw it together a couple days after it came out. And uh, I know, like, when we get to that bridge scene, you know, we all knew it was coming from the trailer. But I, I remember at the time you leaned over and you were like, here we go. You know, because we all knew it. <laughs> and then, you know, Peter starts sensing trouble. We hear there's like eerie strains of Danny Elfman's Doc Ock theme. And I was just thrilled. I probably had like the biggest smile on my face, you know, leading up to when that mechanical claw smashes into the frame and then finally reveals Alfred Molina. Uh, and then we had a huge, awesome action set piece out of that to begin with. Mind boggling, really. Yeah, no, that was it was very exciting. Yeah, seeing um, Tom Holland Spider-Man face off against Dr. Octopus like that. Uh, you know, that and it was interesting, too, because the Tom Holland Spider-Man had... Um, and Dr. Octopus noticed this. He had some new weapons. He had some gadgetry from 
his enhanced uh, spider suit that you know the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man did not have yeah. all those years ago. So it was interesting to see the battle, like even the combat itself was was quite different from what we saw the last time we battled Doctor Octopus. Yeah, so that was it was interesting to see the fight play out and you know, just the combat. And I agree. The well, it's just pugilism itself was done in a different way. Mind-boggling. It just boggles my mind because you know another thing going into this movie. You know, I know it's going to be those actors. I know they look like the characters, but I still wasn't like completely sure. Are they going to be playing like really like the exact characters or just characters very similar? And like, no, it was very clear. You know, he's looking for his machine. He's trying to get the power of the sun in the palm of his hand. Um, so we have we have that classic Doc Ock, like you said, like he's throwing cars and things like, you know, like we've seen before, but he's also fighting the iron spider. And then he's like talking with Dr. Strange and he's in a wizard's dungeon. And he's like <laughs> looking around and he shrugs like, yeah, that's about what a wizard's dungeon would look like, which is hilarious. <laughs> and just so crazy to see Alfred Molina. So many years later, that doc Ock back. It's just what a trip and what a treat, you know? And then, you know, seeing Norman once again, like, doing this battle with his inner demons in the alleyway. We sort of reprise that. Um, I was like mind boggled to see, you know, first of all, Peter's fighting Electro and then Sandman shows up to help. Like, you know, it's Christmas. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a Christmas gift. It's just so much fun. I mean, and there's, you know, there's been such a trend of that in a lot of properties these days. You know, there's reboots and there's uh, reunion specials. There's all these, there's definitely a demand out there, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, they love to revisit characters that they grew up with or that they just know, have grown to know and love or you know, are so passionate about. And I think this movie really you know, hit a home run with it when it came to that. You know, it really brought back these Raimi characters with aplomb and with such skill. And it was just, like you said, such a treat. So exciting to see them again and see, see them kind of brought into the modern age, too, because it's interesting. 2007, you know, 2002 to 2007, it wasn't that long ago, but at the same time, it was, it, it feels like such a long time ago. You know, you watch the Raimi trilogy and you just see little differences there. There's no social media, no Facebook, no smartphones. I mean, just, a lot of people using pay phones. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like how many times was that a plot point? It's just, <laughs> but it, so it's, it's always interesting to see characters from something, you know, decades old, which you know, I guess the you know the first Raimi movie will be two decades old in just a little bit of time here. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that that's what I like too. It's like you know you're seeing these characters. You know what what's it like for them in the modern age? Just the things that are different about life now versus just even 15 years ago. Well, and doing this gives us the opportunity to like put Otto Octavius and Norman Osborn in a room together. Yeah. And it's like I, yeah, they would know each other. Yeah, they worked at Oscorp together. Of course they would know. And the fact that they both know a little bit of each other's histories and Sandman knows they both died, just putting them all in a room and seeing them all interact, it's like who would have ever thought we could have gotten something like that? Certainly not the actors. Like the actors themselves, you know, keep saying, like, I never thought something like this would happen. You know, Willem Dafoe said, like I he kept saying, like, I thought it was crazy when they called me and told me the idea, but I was like, Well, let's hear it out. And it it's it's so meaningful though like they all have a really important purpose in the movie they really aren't just there for fan service i mean there's fan service inherent in having them yes, but like the movie yeah. is sort of built around them they they're pivotal parts of the movie which tells a, i think a, a really good story yeah but you know we're talking so much about the villains too we haven't even really touched on like <laughs> when ned 
opens that portal to Andrew, and we saw him down the alleyway. I was like, oh, oh, that's not Tom's suit. I know that. Those aren't Tom's eyes, you know. And then he ran through and he jumped through the portal and took his mask off. And I was like a kid again. It was great. Yeah. Um, there he is, Andrew Garfield. Well, once we, once he came back, we knew what was coming next. Um, and for me, that was the biggest question. Would Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire be appearing in this movie? And oh, yes. Oh, did they ever? Um, (laughs) Yes, I agree. You know, Peter, you and I were in that uh, theater together. And yeah, we were both uh, reacting the exact same way uh, when we saw Andrew Garfield come out first. And then and then we finally get the man himself, Tobey Maguire. Yeah, I mean, Um, when when Ned starts opening that next portal after Andrew, like, well, we know what's coming next, you know, And, and there he was all of a sudden after all these years, Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker up on screen again. And they're 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 acting just like I remember them acting. They have you know we have this nice like very delicate background James Horner Spider Man theme for Andrew plays and very delicate Danny Elfman theme for Spider Man plays when Toby's Peter shows up and they're having all these interactions with each other. They're so funny. They're so emotional and heartwarming together. It's it's something I didn't think we would ever get. I hoped we would get, and we finally got it. No, ab- absolutely. It's beautiful seeing those those two and also those three Spider-Mans all together. Oh, I mean, and I'm, I, I'm just so glad they all decided to come back. No, I, I, I am too. I mean, and I think the marketing department, they did a really good job of teasing it and hyping it up. I mean, that trailer really generated a lot of buzz and a lot of speculation about Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. Would they ultimately be in the final product? And at least for me, I mean, I, I honestly didn't know 100% until I saw it on the screen myself. Yeah, same. same and I think yeah. that was a big, you know, a big part of why I want, I mean, I would have seen the movie anyway, but. Oh, of course. I mean, I, I still think they did a great job of generating a lot of hype. This will they or won't they be in the movie thing. And I, I would say one of my, the biggest surprises of that movie, it really, I know we're not a, a, a Mark Webb podcast here, but <laughs> boy, this was by far my favorite uh time watching the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man I I thought he was great in this movie I really did oh he was so great yeah he was so funny (laughs) and then so so tragic sometimes too you know I think they did a really great job with him in this movie I really do and as I said it really made me appreciate his um, part of the Spider-Man cinematic multiverse Uh, made me appreciate that a little bit more yeah and again I know we're not a um, web Spider-Man podcast but um but they do form this sort of like brotherhood between the three of them and i know andrew garfield has said like well and the writers have said too like andrew garfield really wanted to play up that aspect that he was like the middle brother he had like the middle brother syndrome yeah you know he always kind of felt left out he didn't feel as cool as the other two and that was a interesting dynamic to the character i know andrew garfield said like he was just so floored by the concept of this he had said like even just being on the screen with the two other Spider-Mans in cinema was enough for him, you know, as yeah. a fan. But he said, just like, you know, when you think about it, just like the, like the spiritual journey that would be to realize that like, there's other people so close to me out there, not the same, but like in a brotherhood kind of way that they know what I've gone through and they can really empathize with that. <laughs> like you've spent your whole life alone. He said, you know, Spider-Man tends to be a very solitary character mm-hmm. and then suddenly getting to pull those people together and be like, you've got brothers. So he said that really spoke to him and he really wanted to dive into that. And that comes from uh, an interview with Variety. Incredible. No, I, I absolutely. Uh, I was just thinking 
just a comparison that I'm thinking about. Um, I've, one of my favorite topics, uh, I, I was a history major and I've always been fascinated by history, a history buff. And one of the things that I found interesting was that a lot of times they'll say, uh, for the president of the United States, um, it's kind of a similar thing where like you form these relationships with your predecessors in office because they're the only ones that understand what it's like. They're the only ones that understand the pressure, the isolation that comes with the job, you know, and mm. a lot of times you'll hear about um, presidents across party lines that form these friendships um, like George W. Bush and Clinton or Bush and Obama, or, you know, George W. Bush and Michelle Obama has been a bigger, you know, they seem to have formed a pretty good friendship in the last number of years. But I guess mm. it's just interesting because it's like there are probably certain jobs where it's just nobody understands it unless they're also doing it or they've also done it. And I think a lot of times another similar group that I can think of is like war veterans. You know, you have mm. um, veterans that go off to war, they're in combat, and it's really hard for them to come back and reintegrate into civilian life. Just, you know, most you know civilians, they don't understand. They don't know what it was like to be in the war zone. And yeah. you know, that's why they, they can relate much better in some cases to other veterans. You know, they'll join uh, the VFW or other veterans groups just because they know what it's like. They can relate. They can understand in a way that other people can't. And so I thought, I think it was really cool for, you know, for all three of the Spider-Man in this movie to have that almost like a support group in a way. It's just these people where they know what it's like. They've all gone through similar tragedy, losing a family member in a very uh, sad and just life altering way. And they understand the burden, the weight of what being this hero means. So it's great for them to, I think, find that connection because I think you can get support from like, your friends or your significant other, but it's ultimately nothing's quite the same as, you know, commiserating with somebody who's been through it. It's just great that they, the three of the, the three Spider-Men, they form that, again, that little support group, that bond, that, um, that triumvirate there, whatever you want to call it. I think that was a really, that was a really cool thing to see. Yes. It's fun to see the three of them interact. Um, but I think more significantly, it's just, it's cool to see them relate and just be able to understand and learn from each other how how to cope with the job or what what does it mean to be Spider-Man and how can, I don't know, it's just cool to see them have that sort of uh, experience together. Mm-hmm. Well said, Sean. And I just want to say, like, even behind the scenes, you know, it's a very small club. <laughs> you have people who have played Spider-Man in cinema. And um, I know um, Andrew Garfield has always talked about how he's looked up to Toby in the role. You know, there's footage of him saying, like, to him, you know, Tobey Maguire is always going to be Spider-Man. Um, like, he, as a kid, like, he memorized those lines, you know, the opening monologue from the movie and everything. And uh, in this interview with Variety, he was saying, um, behind the scenes, he said, you know, I think the first time we were all in the suit together, it was hilarious because it's, like, just three ordinary dudes who were just actors just hanging out. But then also, hmm. you just become a fan and you say, oh, my God. We're all together in the suits and we're doing the pointing thing. <laughs> you know, there was talk about going to the bathroom and, you know, padding around the package. Uh, we talked about what worked for each of us. Tom was jealous because I have little zippers in my suit that I can get my hands <laughs> out very easily. To work his phone, he had to use his nose because he couldn't access his hands. <laughs> um, and then we would have deeper conversations, too, and talk about our experiences with the character. Um Andrew also points out that there's a line I improvised in the movie when he looks at Tobey Maguire and Tom Holland and he says he loves them. He said that was just him loving them. Hmm. You know, that was his improvised line. He just he just loves those guys. No, 
you could tell. You could tell they have some real chemistry on the screen together. They have a real... It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel fake at all. Yeah. Wonderful to have our heroes back and have them all working together on the same side, building each other up, helping each other out. But you know what else was kind of wonderful in a different way? Norman Osborn himself. Uh, huge part in this movie. Yeah, Definitely, yeah. I think, culturally making a lot of waves with people. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, sort of making the rounds once again with, with some brand new meme material. You know, uh, <laughs> he comes back with a couple classic zingers. You know, something of a scientist myself. Can the Spider-Man come out to play? And then he's got some some modern classics now. Norman's on sabbatical, honey, is one that people <laughs> love. And, I, you know, I can see why. <laughs> but Gobby's back. I know. It's it's just as we've uh, been talking about how, what's fun, how much fun it is to see the heroes back. It's fun to see the villains back, too. What are they up to? Oh, what, yeah. how, how are they acting in the modern day? And he's got a new look, for one thing, you know, which I think is interesting. You know, he keeps the flight suit, but now he's got this, like, tattered purple hood. And he's got some suit upgrades, too. He's got a bag of tricks, those goggles. And he breaks the mask, too, very early in No Way Home. So we get to see Norman's absolutely terrifying face that much more. Uh, in fact, the actors had said, being on set with him, it was actually kind of terrifying. Hmm. Because, you know, he's he's given it his all. And when you're in that position, he's looking right at you. They say it's, like, hard not to feel actually afraid. <laughs> they said, like, it was easy to, like, play into that performance because mm -hmm. he was so scary on set. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad we did get to get to see more of Willem Dafoe's face because that's so powerful and scary. But, you know, in an interview with the New York Times, he says that probably was because of the negative backlash to the first one, the old Power Rangers suit, as we've discussed <laughs> in the past, you know. In the New York Times interview, he says, uh, I must be honest, I am aware that there was some criticism of that mask in the original one. We heard it enough that it was probably a consideration to change it up a little bit. I don't think about that because I don't think about emoting with my face. My face follows my heart. It's just an expression of what you're feeling. So I think that's a good point. You know, he would be doing that same thing with or without the mask, it sounds like. Yeah. And really, when you look very closely in Spider-Man 1 through the mask, you can, you can just see how wild his eyes are, how, you know... <sighs> really mask like his own faces under there the expressions he's making mm -hmm. but um but it's nice to really get to remove that layer and just see the full terrifying force of the goblin within oh absolutely so he's got some new tricks and he's perfected some old tricks too he calls the glider once again to impale someone from behind and this time it actually pretty much works out for him <laughs> so that so that's good for him and also he was again as an actor Willem Dafoe very physical with his own stunts. And we've talked about that before on Spider-Man 1, uh, that he always wanted to do everything he could with the character, with the stunts, even if it was just like his hand or an arm mm -hmm. on the screen. He didn't want to double. He wanted to do it to give the Goblin his own character. That's very important to, to Willem Dafoe. You know, he said that doing all that physical stuff was like very important to him signing on. That was sort of something he wanted to make sure he got to do before he took on the movie. He was saying to the New York Times, I said, I really want there to be action. I want to take part in action scenes because that's really fun for me. It's the only way to root the character. Otherwise, it just becomes a series of memes. Mm -hmm. And he's probably got a good point there. And then again, in a behind the scenes interview, he was saying to do this physical stuff was important to me. And he goes on to say, because that's fun to me. 
And also, it's really impossible to add any integrity or any fun to the character if you don't participate in these things. Because all that action stuff informs your relationship to the characters mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. It makes you earn your right to play the character in a funny way. Hmm. I mean, I know there's been a lot of people saying like, wow, Willem de Goat, 66 <laughs> years old, out there kicking Tom Holland's butt with the best of them, probably is the best of them. And we said it before when we talked about the Green Goblin, but just so much... So much uh, respect mm-hmm. to Willem Dafoe and his oh, incredible yeah. commitment to no, this part. Nobody else could do it. Nobody else could bring to that role what he brought to it. I know one of the writers was saying in a different interview, you know, when they had reached out and they said, hey, you know, Willem Dafoe, would you be interested in this? And then like he got back to them and was saying like, yeah, would you be interested in like taking a walk with me so we can like really talk about how I see the character? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, well, well, yeah, geez. <laughs> He's give, giving them notes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really appreciate that in an actor being like, let's take a walk here. Let's talk about how I see the character. And that's what they had said. Um, Eric Summers, the writer, was saying to The Hollywood Reporter that like no one knows the character as well as or gives as much thought to the character as someone who then has to embody mm-hmm. it and sell it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that definitely shaped what they did. They said, you know, they were talking about Toby and Andrew's contribution as well as Willem Dafoe's contribution. I'm sure the others as well. But, like, what what a conversation to be able to have with Willem Dafoe about the Green Goblin. Oh, yeah. And you know what? what's kind of funny is in a previous episode, we've sort of said that the Green Goblin was essentially the overarching villain of the entire Sam Raimi Spider-Man franchise. And now here his villainy extends even beyond that original franchise. You know, he's he's become Tom Holland's Peter Parker's most difficult, most destructive, most devastating foe he's ever faced on such a personal level as this. Hmm. Like, he's not going to snap out half the universe, but like, and, on a and personal you know, that, level. I was though, going to say, and that's saying something given that, you know, the, in the Tom Holland, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, yeah, that Spider-Man was snapped out of existence. I mean, that's, Villains don't get much more, they don't take on a much bigger scope than that, you know, wiping out half of existence. Right. So, yeah, that's that's saying something if Norman Osborn manages to get under someone's skin even more than, you know, Thanos. Well, you know, uh, I think Jamie Foxx had a really interesting insight. CCXP convention uh, had a villains panel with those three villains, Willem Dafoe, Alfred Molina, and Jamie Foxx. And they were asking who the most terrifying of the villains Peter was facing was. And I thought he had a really good observation where he says, like, you know, look at Electro. Like, Electro is mad at the world. Mm-hmm. But he said, like, what Willem Dafoe does with this Peter Parker, he said it's personal. And he says nothing can beat that. Like, no matter what costume you put on, no matter what you say, when it's personal, that has the most weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing can beat that. And I think he's got a really good point. Like, you know, Thanos, terrifying villain, but, mm-hmm. but the Green Goblin, he's taken everything from peter in the end it's just interesting at the end of the day that thanos and green goblin norman osborne are now all part of the same continuity in a way <sighs> yeah you know, what a what a conversation we're having i guess is the point point. and i thought endgame was mind-blowing with like yeah. time travel and talking raccoons and everything <laughs> coming together with tony stark and everything and then here we have this spanning entire generations of spider-man franchises absolutely wild well and i I think now we're we're kind of coming to uh, you know we've been talking a lot about the green goblin here and how he appears in this movie and i think i think we can really start to look in more detail at um 
what I think is what are a couple of the biggest questions that have arisen as a result of his most recent portrayal here in No Way Home. Mm-hmm. What is Norman's relationship with the Goblin in this film? And what is this film's interpretation of that Norman slash Goblin relationship? And that's something, you know, Peter, you and I have discussed quite, yeah. quite extensively already. Mm-hmm. Where does Norman end? Where does the Goblin begin? Are they one and the same? Are they different? Is one, you know, just amplifying the other? Is it a split personality? Is it an alter ego? Is it the same person the whole time? Just maybe under some sort of, like you're, you know, you're like you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol or something that's, you know, intensifying feelings that might have already been there, but you lose that inhibition. I don't know. I mean, that's yeah. what or mind altering substances. I mean, I guess we talked a lot about that in our earlier episodes here, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the biggest things that this movie dives into with uh, the Green Goblin here and Norman Osborn, which is. What is the structure of their relationship to one another? Yeah, and I know um, in the first movie, I think it's sort of intentionally a little bit, a little bit vague, a little bit open to interpretation, which I love. Yeah, and of course, there's different ways to interpret it here too. But one of the interpretations that we enjoyed going through last time was that, like, essentially, the qualities that form the Green Goblin were already in Norman. They were sort of like his id versus his ego. The the id in mm-hmm. there, the the darker parts of his personality that he didn't necessarily want to admit to. They didn't necessarily want to acknowledge. But those parts were given a voice mm-hmm. by the goblin and like brought to the surface. And so it all is sort of an extension of him and he's able to have this sort of like conversation with the darker side of himself. To say what you won't, to do what you can't. Precisely. Well, because like, you know, already in, in, in that movie, like everything that the goblin did was essentially something that on some level Norman wanted to be done. Mm-hmm. So they're working yep. sort of in, in tandem a lot, even though, again, these are the parts of Norman that sort of frighten him. Gradually throughout the movie, I think he sort of comes to connect with it closer and closer, sort of sublimating it more and more into his ego even. Mm-hmm. But here in this movie... You know, we're, we're sort of thrown right back into this fight between Norman and the Goblin. The Goblin seems now to, like, completely supplant the Norman identity, totally against Norman's will this time. Like I said before, mm-hmm. there always seemed to be something that Norman was getting out of it as well. And also, like, for him just to emerge like this, like, I, I don't think we've really seen that. Like, maybe... It, could have come close in like the Thanksgiving dinner or at the board meeting we start seeing hints of the goblin mm-hmm. but for the goblin just to like suddenly be there and just overtake Norman yeah you definitely see Norman I mean at one point he's begging he's pleading for help he's in those just throes of despair and anguish like we you know had previously seen him when he's like on the floor with the mask on on his chair yeah, he just seems so terrified of the goblin and he wants to get away from him it, you know, you feel bad for him. You feel bad for oh, the yeah. guy. You oh, want, yeah. you know, when he goes to Aunt May, he wants help. You feel bad seeing him so scared and just not knowing what to do. And and, on, and just on a side note, I mean, I mean, just imagine what it would be like to wake up and you're in this completely different world, this alternate universe where, I mean, I think anybody would be terrified if they woke up in that circumstance, which is you wake up in this world and, you know, your son doesn't exist, your family, like Oscorp doesn't exist. That whole just none of that exists. You don't exist. Nobody knows who you are. And I think that would be just so terrifying. It would be so hard to deal with that by itself or anybody, let alone somebody who has this struggle in his soul over what kind of person is, is he going to be? Yeah. And at one point, you know, Doc Ock says, you know, you're flying off into the darkness to fight a ghost. Norman Osborn is dead, you know, and in some ways he is. Norman shows up hmm. here and 
you know, that total lack of connection terrifies him, but it seems to embolden the goblin. Hmm. And I think that's a huge catalyst to both Norman and the goblin in this movie. Like arriving in this new world, like you said, losing his family, his company, his house, his own identity. I think yeah, that's, that, that's such that's like a was. huge splash of cold water to hit Norman's face. I think it sort of like helps wake him up from that stupor of the goblin and sort of re-examine his life and his connection to the goblin. You know, I think he's so thoroughly system shocked, you know, that, that, that he ends up turning to Spider-Man for help, like the one person he thinks he can help him. He's more humbled and more like human than we've really ever seen Norman before, I think. Yeah. It's in some ways almost like an interesting parallel to where Tom Holland's Peter ends up at the end of the movie totally disconnected you know in terms of his identity from everyone i was just about to say that because yeah you see norman and how he reacts to being totally anonymous nobody knows him he's a nobody in this universe it's terrifying by the end of the movie tom holland spider-man is kind of in the same boat doesn't have anybody interesting parallel to the choice peter ends up making later to willingly let go of all that connection Mm -hmm. and identity and yet i think his darker half also has like some sort of a reaction to that. I think like yeah. the goblin suddenly finds itself in a new world, as the goblin says, like a, a new world to conquer. He's not tethered to a pre-existing reality of Norman. Well, you know, he finds himself surrounded by villains and people who already know his identity. So like there's there's nothing of the Norman identity to ground him. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing holding him back. Yeah, there's no Oscorp board that just fired them. There's no Quest Aerospace trying to you know, home in on their military contract game. There's no none of these rivals um, that have messed with them or wronged them or slighted them in some way. Right. So and so he just has the world now to mess yeah, with. Yeah, he's just it's just kind of evil for evil's sake, cruelty for cruelty's sake almost. And one question I have is like, how long was the goblin there? Like, how long was the goblin hmm. waiting yeah, to strike? I, I, that, that's a good question. Because I know watching the movie the first time, I kept wondering like, is this a trick? You know, is this is the goblin going to snap? When, when's it going to happen? And, you know, the goblin later says that uh, he was watching at Aunt May's work. So the goblin was there deep behind Norman's eyes. So Norman was definitely in control, the goblin says at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, I do notice that Norman is wearing his goblin flight suit the whole time, even under those clothes that he found. So I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting that, like, he never actually let go of that. And he was always sort of lurking just under the surface. Maybe unbeknownst to Norman even maybe Norman didn't even realize that he was putting on clothes over the flight suit I don't know but again in this movie just like they did in the Spider-Man movie uh yeah Willem Dafoe wears nice looking false teeth when he's in his Norman persona and then they Mm. let him use his you know natural teeth which aren't as like uniform uh when he's the goblin but again I really can't tell from from just that personally Hmm. One other question I had is like, I wonder if the goblin like purposely fudged that formula that Norman was working on to help cure himself of that persona. Because Aunt May does end up jabbing him in the neck with it and he says it didn't work. But I have to wonder, because in that scene where we see him messing with the formula, Otto's telling him how great it's going to be when there's no more darker half, just you. And like you just see the back of Norman's head and he very forebodingly says, just me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know? I I think there was something something was going on there. I, I don't think so. He probably uh, purposely was sabotaging the formula. At least that's my interpretation of that. Yeah, I think so. It was just Goblin. There wasn't really much of Norman there anymore at that point. No, 
But so then that leaves him, like we said, with this whole world to conquer. And he sort of picks Peter as his first target. In part, I think, sort of because he was slighted by Peter, in a sense. Hmm. We know the goblin is very vindictive. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, yes. he does say, you know, you tried to fix me. Now I'm going to fix you. And so he sort of takes it upon himself to become like this dark mentor to Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar to that, in Spider-Man 1, Peter's caught in this sort of moral battle between these two competing father figures, Uncle Ben on one side and Norman slash the Goblin on the other side. You know, the bad side. <laughs> kind of like the old um, the old trope of, you know, you have an angel on one shoulder, a devil on the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so once again, we sort of see Norman and the Goblin return to that formula. You know, heck, once again, Norman is so thoroughly impressed with Peter's intelligence and scientific skills that he, you know, humorously suggests he'd be happy to hire mm, Peter at yeah. Oscorp if he didn't mind commuting to another universe. Once again, you know, offers him a job because he's impressed with his mm, that's mental true. power. Hmm. But of course, the Goblin has a totally different take on all this. And I think, too, we've talked about how the villains and the characters in this world returning from other franchises all fit really well in this movie and serve important functions. I think... One of the ways that Norman works so well and resonates in this trilogy is that I think this Homecoming trilogy focuses a lot on themes of legacy and mentorship Hmm. because Peter's always surrounded by these potential mentors and parental figures throughout Hmm. it, like Tony Stark, Aunt May, Nick Fury, Quentin Beck. And I I would just say, like, even more indirectly, but still in this universe, I mean, you you have figures like Captain America, you have all the other Avengers that presumably would have been at least maybe not directly mentoring him, but at least some sort of influence on how he should behave, people that he can look up to and somewhat relate to as um, enhanced individuals. So I I think the the Tom Holland movies definitely focus on that. And in this one in particular, there's just like a bevy of characters surrounding Peter in this moral journey. We have Aunt May, obviously. We've got several older brothers, you know, stepping up. Um, Doctor Strange is sort of like in the middle here. He has his own sort of philosophy that he tries to instill on peter and then yeah green goblin is on that far side that we don't want to see peter go down (laughs) and he makes it his mission to drag peter over to that side Mm -hmm. and he tells him you can have anything you want you can do whatever you want there's no rules you know meanwhile dr strange is telling him no there are rules and you can't do whatever you want the problem he says is you're trying to live these two different lives you have to pick one you have to choose But at the same time, he tells him, like, well, these villains, they're not your problem. They're fated to die, so be it. It's not up to you. Mm -hmm. And then meanwhile, you know, on the far other side, there's Aunt May, who says, yes, there's rules. Furthermore, there are obligations and responsibility. And you have to Mm -hmm. do this because you can. These villains are, in fact, your problem because you have the power to help them. So you have to. It's like Willem Dafoe says, you know, he, he said during the CCXP convention, Green Goblin has a case to state this time. You know, he's trying Hmm. to make a case, a philosophy of life. Hmm. It's not about some kind of abstract mustache twirling power grab. You know, and he sort of elaborates that on a behind the scenes interview where he says that uh, the Goblin character really believes in a world of losers and winners. And he believes that power is all that matters. And it's not an abstract thing philosophically. Hmm. He has very little patience or interest in compassion or empathy. He believes things get done by people that are strong. And weak people, we don't really worry about them. And that all feels very consistent oh, yeah. with uh, where he is in Spider-Man 1. Oh, absolutely. We, we, and, you know, we talked quite a bit about that 
in those episodes how he how he feels about the teeming masses. Yeah, they're only good for one thing. And yeah, lifting up the exceptional few. And we talked in our episodes about you know Norman basically seeing himself as a god, and you know that moment where he confronts God himself by uh, challenging mm-hmm. Aunt May to finish the Lord's Prayer, and he makes that explicit in this one where he says, "Gods don't have to choose; we take." And so throughout this movie, the goblin is hell bent on carrying out this deep philosophical discussion with Peter with his fists. <laughs> There's this whole like war of the gods to prove the goblin's physical power and his intellectual enlightenment, you know, his complete supremacy over Peter and May and their apparently faulty ways of thinking. Hmm. He's just thrilled to show Peter that like he can have so much more mm-hmm. and do whatever he wants as soon as he lets go of his morality. <laughs> that reminds me of, oddly enough, an episode of The Big Bang Theory that I watched many years ago, but I just remember there was a line, Sheldon, you know, the resident know-it-all, he quotes Frederick Nietzsche, which is something to the effect of morality is just something that lesser people invented to hold the truly exceptional ones back. Wow. Like I said, oddly enough, it was from Big Bang Theory, but it sounds exactly like the point that Norman is trying to get here that, you know, just let go of morality. It's not really doing anything for you. It was invented by lesser people just to hold us gods, us exceptional people back and, you know, to keep us from our true potential. So it's not serving you any good. Yeah. And he really wants Peter to see that. And like Goblin wants to make it so clear to Peter. He wants him to lose everything to prove that, you know, he's trying to help people. But as he says, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, which... Mm -hmm. I have to say, sounds an awful lot like, in spite of everything you've done for them, eventually they will hate you. Yep. And maybe not too dissimilar to the end of Spider-Man 1, where he wants to teach Peter a lesson by attacking mm-hmm. his heart. But like even more so here, he wants to like thoroughly see Peter, see his soul turn sour, you know, more than just making him suffer and kill him. He wants him his soul to wither and become as dark as his. And, like, one of the especially dangerous things about the Goblin this time around that I don't really quite think Toby's Peter had to face was that even in the the act of fighting him, certainly in the act of wanting to kill him, he's winning. The Goblin is winning. That's Mm -hmm. him seducing you to his side. You can see just how gleeful. He's, He's just smiling downright gleefully whenever Peter's anger and rage leads him to beat the daylights out of him. It's a very... Very similar dynamic to um, Return of the Jedi. When I was, I was so sure you were going to say that because <laughs> I, th- I think I'm <laughs> because we love to compare. Yeah, we love to compare the, the Goblin Spider-Man storyline to to Star to, Wars. Well, yeah. Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, you know, and the Emperor. There, I mean, it's but but I think there are so, a lot of very obvious similarities. But I think it's interesting. Exactly, it's a it's obviously a very compelling kind of story arc. But I think. Um, in terms of the plot points, yeah, I, I think there's um, there's a lot of similarity and parallel to that uh, very famous climactic scene from Return of the Jedi to what we saw here in No Way Home, which is this, um, you know, the villain almost, um, you know, they, they're daring the, the hero to embrace the dark side, to embrace the, the hatred, embrace the anger. Right, because that's so easy. Like, we're, we're trained to be like, yeah, fight the bad guy. But, you know, here... As you're doing it, as you're letting your your hate spill over, you're letting them win. You're you're renouncing your rules and your limitations, and you are wanting to take what you want, which in this case is the <laughs> goblin's destruction. And so, yeah, he smiles gleefully, much like Palpatine once smiled gleefully to see the hero come so close to succumbing into the darkness like that. 
Mm-hmm. That's the whole big moral conflict, you know, the whole moral battleground, once again, between the goblins' philosophies and Aunt May's philosophies in this case. You know, she tells him, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. If you can help people, you have to. This is what we do. You know, or as her, her gravestone says, you know, when you help someone, you help everyone, which I believe was borrowed from the uh, 2018 Insomniac game, where that was also <laughs> Aunt May's philosophy. That game, I played it last year. Um, yeah, last year, 2021. Did and... you recognize that in the movie? Because I didn't know at the time. You know, I looked it up later. Because no, I, I... I, I recognize that. Because I, I was like, oh, that's, yeah? that's very familiar. And then it hit me like, oh, that's from the Aunt May from the, you know, the video game. I thought that was cool to sort of bring in that Aunt May lore, which apparently was invented for that video game. And not to mention, like, she's working for the same company, too, The Feast. You know, it's the same organization that she's working for in the video game as well. Well, that was my first, that was what tipped me off because I'm like, oh, Feast. That was a huge plot point in the video game. Mm-hmm. Great, you know, fantastic video game. So it was, it was really cool to see, you know, as cool as it was to see the Raimi movies put into this No Way Home. It was also really cool to see them bring in some elements from the video game continuity as well so that was yeah it was yeah. really really neat to see that really cool to see that worked in yeah well peter we've been we've been talking a lot just now about feast yes and i don't know about you but i'm getting a little hungry here oh i think i am ready to have you chow down on my question for you ah i think it's time for you and i to challenge each other to another round of brilliant or lazy i thought it was gonna be pizza time yeah, so it's, I, it's brilliant or lazy time. Well, I am ready for you to chow down on my question. I, I can't wait to see which one of us will be eating their words. <laughs> good one. Good one. I will offer you the chance to ask your question first, because otherwise I'm ready to go. I really want to see if you can get my question. Well, you're too kind, Sean. You're certainly too kind. Uh, I'll take you up on your offer. And we've been talking a lot about Norman, the Green Goblin, this episode. And uh, also speaking of your food transition, your 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 clever food transition there. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I can combine the two and ask you, how many donuts do we see Norman Osborn secretly stow away for later while at the feast center? Ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think they were doing it. Something, he took some sort of Some sort of from breakfast pastry. Uh, I'm going yeah. to guess three. I don't know. I don't think he, it's a homeless shelter. It's a, uh, it's a, place for the, the 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 less fortunate and so i don't think at that point in the movie he wasn't i think he he had enough goodwill in him to not take you know pastries from those who really needed them so i'm going to guess yeah, three. he was being pretty sneaky though true yeah good three good guess yeah i was kind of thinking three two three sounds about right but in fact it was two that we see one for each pocket <laughs> either <laughs> side of his jacket okay i guess that makes sense practical norman Exactly. He takes a moment while Aunt May and Peter are talking to like sneakily like slide the box closer to him. And he takes one. Then he takes another. <laughs> I I mean that is that is very very astute uh, viewing there. I didn't even uh, notice you know, that. He, he's probably gonna need a snack later. You know, gotta keep an eye on his blood sugar. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, you know, and uh, it's just it's just practical. Well, you I know? guess it, and he's well, he sees something well, and he's gonna take it. We know Norman. You know, he, you know, gods don't have to choose; they take. So. So I'm going to take this donut. He's never he's never asked before for food. I mean, Aunt May can tell you that. That's when he's true. hungry, he's he, just going to take it. We're not used to seeing Norman in that kind of position where he literally is dependent on the charity of others. It, it, it's very unusual no, yeah. to see somebody it who... It is very humbling. In his own timeline, he's you know heading this major 
defense contractor, very wealthy, lives in a mansion with servants and all of that stuff. And then in this time, in this movie, somebody, you know, living basically on the streets, no, you know, nowhere to go, no food, not a penny to his name. It's, it's very sad. No, yeah, it is very, it's very humbling and humiliating. And, and you know, yeah, it makes sense to sort of grab some food uh, just in case, you know, he doesn't know what's going to happen later. Yeah, so yeah, uh, just to be ready. But of course, it's, it's interesting that he grabs the donuts specifically. I think there's some better food. Well, was there <laughs> hanging around um, was in, there the, like, in the kitchen uh, there? Was there some healthier food? You know, bananas or orange, oranges or grapefruit? Any sort of healthier breakfast fare? Yeah, for what it's worth, I mean, there are like, you know, some little salads put together already okay. that we can see in the kitchen. But then again, like, who wants a salad? You know? Well, um, you know, I, I have to question his taste in sweets based on at least the fruit cake. You know, fruit cakes are. Just hor- That's a good horrid, point. horrid things. But then again, you know, very. I've never met a person who didn't like at least some kind of donut. Um, you know, they're just a universally beloved thing. I mean, just like the Krabby Patty. Yeah. The only the only people who don't like donuts have never tasted one. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, so before uh, we get too far, <laughs> all into- right, Sean. Uh, so well, so you're you're sort of you're sort of dodging the verdict, which is. Not exactly brilliant, but I'm sorry. Well, I think we had in our one of our other episodes, there was a question I got sort of right. So I think I was half brilliant, half lazy, so average. But if we want to put a darker spin on it, we could say mediocre. Mediocre? Mediocre? <laughs> I'm sorry, Sean. You missed brilliant by exactly one donut. Uh, I'm sorry. You're one donut below brilliant. Sorry. So, well, that's okay. So <laughs> we've been talking a lot about feast here. Mm-hmm. And it is time for you to feast on my question. Let's do it. So, <laughs> feast, as you may have noticed in the movie, is an acronym. Yeah. Oh. Uh-oh. What does it stand for? Ooh. Okay. Well, so I think I should say, for the record, I have no idea. So <laughs> let me let me try to parse that here. Um, for everyone, always some tasty hyphen food could you say that again <laughs> i say i think it's for everyone always some tasty hyphen food so for everyone always some tasty food tasty food all one word i, I, I like that i li- i like that guess but uh unfortunately it is uh incorrect okay so wh- what is what is what does feast really stand for it stands for food emergency aid shelter training Ah, uh, okay, okay. Well, that's good. That's that sounds better than what I came up with. So, kind of a, a one-stop shop for a lot of uh, different sorts of social services if you're uh, unfortunately in that position in that part of New York City. So, yeah. Well, that is a really great way to see Aunt May really practicing what she preaches for Peter. Yeah, and that's that's really nice to have that as sort of a centerpiece of this movie, and uh, really cool on us for managing to sort of like uh, sort of accidentally make all of our questions so thematically resonant so we done good yeah i I, (laughs) i've enjoyed this this dinner of failures i guess because i'm lazy and you're lazy (laughs) yeah not exactly a breakfast of champions more of a brunch of losers (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right i think we've pretty much run our food and feasting uh segues Pretty much as far as they can well, go. Well, I think there is a fork. So. There is a fork in the road here, Peter. We can either continue to make food jokes, oh, or no. we can, you know, get back, uh, get back to the to the uh, to the Sean. to the meat of this episode. <laughs> I'm go- I'm gonna put a stop to this. 
<laughs> I'm going to put an end to this right now. Put an end to the uh, madness. <laughs> well, at the risk of getting any more uh, poorly constructed food jokes or segues, uh, we are getting toward the end of this episode now, so I'm going to move us along. All right. Before we finish this episode, I would like to sneak in a discussion about another returning Raimi Repscallion, our man Flint Marco. But before that, I've got a last lingering question about the legacy of the Green Goblin in the Raimi-verse. And Sean, you know what that question is. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think we've talked about this in other episodes, but it's just the Green Goblin's attack on the Unity Festival gets um, front-page coverage in the Bugle. So you have to imagine that when, you know, Norman Osborn dies or when, you know, this battle with the Green Goblin at the bridge there, that's got to be front-page news. Which we sort of wondered about, like, you know, isn't it sort of a coincidence that, you know, as soon as this high-profile person dies all these goblin attacks stopped as well yeah you know at some point you know somebody connected the dots that norman osborne was the green goblin yeah and i think that raises the question then of in the raimi universe um when did um it become apparent to people like dr octopus about norman and the goblin and that whole you know that whole thing (laughs) yeah when did the when did the wider public become privy to that knowledge well, I, I thought that was something that was interesting because, yeah, that is crazy to think. Even by the time of Spider-Man 2, Doc Ock already knows that Norman was the Green Goblin. So, like, really not that long. Within two years, people had connected the dots because this movie makes it clear that apparently Otto and Flint are both very aware that <laughs> uh, Norman Osborn was, in fact, the Green Goblin and did, in fact, kill himself, which in the Raimi movies is not clear. All we see from what Harry's looking up is that the police are suspecting Spider-Man to have been the killer mm-hmm. of Norman Osborn. Um, but then again, I suppose you have to say, well, I guess that's just Harry's bias at play here. Just assuming that, well, you know, obviously my dad couldn't have been the Green Goblin. Spider-Man must have killed him. So maybe that's why we never hear about it. And I suppose you have to assume Otto wouldn't bring it up because, uh, yeah, that's a little off color to bring up with the son of the man in yeah. question. And also, who the, also happens to be your boss? Yeah. And, well, yeah, the guy that's given you tons of money to build your machine. So yeah, a little Happy bit to of pay a, the bills. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> would not. Uh, I wouldn't want to do say or do anything to offend him. I'm sure you know they they couldn't really prove anything either way. But at the same time, I wonder if Otto was you know also passingly aware of that glider. Yeah, you know, at least in passing, that he could sort of put two and two together to be like, okay, yeah. So like Osborne's dead. The attacks have stopped. They think that there's a connection. I think so, too, because that's um, that's definitely the Oscorp glider. That is a great example of what, as a lawyer, uh, what we would call circumstantial evidence. It's just inferences, but they make a lot of sense. Yeah. That's exactly it. It's like, you know, you're kind of looking for these connections between things. And likewise, I'm sure, you know, they they probably figured it out that, you know, he was the one that stole the flight suit from the factory. He stole the technology. Mm Mm-hmm. And not to mention the, the murder of the board members, they would have somebody would have figured out that right, very right. soon before that was when they fired Norman from the company and Norman had this big outburst at the meeting. I'm sure people would have figured it out, put two and two together, seen the glider wounds on his body. I think yeah. I feel like it would have become pretty apparent pretty quickly that Norman Osborne was the Green Goblin. He was the guy that bombed Times Square, the guy that kidnapped Mary Jane and Aunt May, the guy that almost killed the kids on the tram car. Or the cable car, I should say. And, you know, as Flint says, it was all over the news. And we don't really see that. But then again, I guess you have to figure our, ma- our main source of news as observers of the Raimi franchise is the Daily Bugle, which is hell-bent on saying that Spider-Man was behind everything. Well, so again, the bias. Not to mention that um, 
doesn't, th- you know, Jameson's one assistant in the Raimi movies. He makes a comment about how the Daily Bugle is, like, is what, like ninth or tenth in circulation? After. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Yeah. So there's like clearly like, you know, m- not just one or two, but like at least six or seven other newspapers in New York City that are presumably covering these same events. And I mean, you know, you know, a company like Oscorp, where Norman Osborn was a very, you know, well-known you know, member of the community, his company was, you know, the largest supplier to the U.S. military. I mean, in our world, I mean, obviously, you know, most people would know that, say, Boeing or Halliburton or... You know, they're, you know, military contractors are very well-known companies is what I'm trying to say. And I think mm-hmm. the death of the CEO of one of those companies under very suspicious circumstances would have definitely gotten a lot of attention. Yeah. And apparently now we have confirmation that it did, thanks to Flint. And yeah, I mean, speaking of Flint, we get to pick up again with, with Flint Marco in the movie uh, when he meets up with Peter. Of the three Raimi villains that they bring back, he's the one that gets by far the least amount of development, the least amount of screen time. It's true. We don't get to know as much about his uh, goings on and what he's been up to. Not really, no. We don't get to get as much of a peek into him. What's interesting is I think we can sort of assume that he comes from like a, a fairly later point in his timeline rather than like most of the villains who come like very shortly before they were killed in their battle with Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, of course, Flint gets away to live hopefully a happily happy life he's forgiven for his involvement in the death of uncle ben yeah and he just kind of floats away on the wind yeah. and when he first sees peter he recognizes the costume and says you know remember me sort of suggesting that there's been like a passage of time here so he certainly wasn't like plucked from you know the midst of the final confrontation in spider-man 3 it could have been a very long time it could have been yeah it's a little bit more ambiguous. Which, for me, suggests a couple of things. First of all, Penny is doing all right, which is good. Yeah. You know, like, it, her medical condition in Spider-Man 3 is a little unclear how she was doing. So that's, you know, sort of good to check in in that front. And then also, I guess, it sort of suggests that either Flint's been keeping his nose clean enough to avoid a run-in with Spider-Man since, or they've got some sort of a understanding. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, but so they've they've definitely not run into each other since. Yeah. And I I think he's very interesting in this movie. You know, he's pretty chill most of the time. And even though he's deeply confused when he first finds himself here, he doesn't know where this is. He doesn't know what's going on. There's monsters around. But his first instinct is to help Peter. You know, he sort of recognized that costume says, hey, what can I do to help? So like from the jump, that's a good guy. It's a well-intentioned guy. You know, but then it's not until things get like increasingly weird, you know, that his more cautious and untrusting instincts sort of start to emerge. As Electro asks him, you know, you, you trust Peter? He's like, I don't trust anyone. He, he wants to go along with Peter. He wants to help Peter. You know, as soon as the, the villains are cured, mm-hmm. the sooner he gets to go home to Penny, he says. And, you know, so, you know, he takes on himself to tolerate quite a while of waiting quietly and respectfully as peter sorts this stuff out with the villains it's not until things like start going sideways that he like retreats to himself you know with that single-minded goal of getting back to his daughter but like i think that like that lack of trust i think that sort of sounds about right for flint yeah that, you know that, that comports with everything we've we've already learned about him from spider-man 3 seems like a solitary guy doesn't always yeah. work well with others no. I mean, he he seems like he's been burned by a lot of different people. He clearly has a very tense relationship with Penny's mother. Mm-hmm. That can't help anything. That can't help you with being able to trust people, I imagine. 
So yeah, and think about the last partnership he apparently formed. You know, with Dennis Carradine, that's that what, definitely yeah. uh, <laughs> did not turn end out well. very well. So yeah, so yeah, so he does sort of seem like this person who'd rather leave well enough alone just in general well even I, just another you know it's a very quick scene in spider-man 3 but you know you you remember there's that scene where he's fighting venom at one point because i think he thinks that venom is spider-man or right right but yeah even in that movie it takes a lot it takes a little bit of persuasion from eddie brock venom to convince sandman to join in his um, conspiracy to, you know, to finally kill spider-man so right so i mean i think what we see there is like first off he's like i'm not going to deal with this weird thing i'm just going to walk away i think that speaks a lot to the character i'm just caring about me caring about my daughter don't need to worry about anything else and like you said it sort of takes a little bit of a discussion and i think what we see there is like there is a little bit of an opportunistic edge to him you know like he does sort of end up making decisions not necessarily like the best decisions the wisest decisions sometimes but like sometimes if he's like okay well there's an opportunity to get spider-man finally off my back i guess i'll take it because he's keeping me from helping my daughter yeah. And so I think that sort of lines up what we see here. It's maybe not the best choice to like end up opposing Peter and the other Spider-Mans as they're trying to get everyone back to their world. But he just, he can't trust them. He can't even trust their abilities if they'll be able to defeat these other villains. Because mm-hmm. in the final fight, you see him fighting Electro as well as the other guys. Like he just wants to go home. He's He's had enough. He's tired. He doesn't want to risk... Electro or one of the other villains destroying that box yeah. and trapping him here forever. So it's sort of tragic in that way that his, you know, how solitary he is, you know. He's this very untrusting, salt-of-the-earth, small-time crook yeah. who just kind of keeps getting, like, jerked around by this keeps, very strange world. Keeps getting caught up in things that are just so just so far beyond whatever he intended to be involved in. He just keeps getting caught up in these crazy scenarios. He just... You're right. He's just a small-time crook who just wants to, you know, get money to take care of his daughter and her health issues. He doesn't. It doesn't seem like he's he's looking for bigger trouble than that. And no, he keeps finding himself in the middle of trouble like that. And, yeah, uh, you know, right. That, he just, has to be not very, a bad person. Just has bad luck. Kind of similar to, to like you know Norman. Like, so even in his own universe, he already feels this way. Very solitary, disconnected. Very just not looking to make a lot of waves, but then, then you take all of that and you, now you transplant him into this other universe where, where he's even more disoriented, even more disconnected, even more doesn't know what the heck is going on. Doesn't know what's what doesn't know what is real. What's not. So, you know, like we were talking about with Norman, like just imagine if you were transplanted into a universe where you knew nothing, knew nobody, it would be very hard to trust people. You wouldn't know anything. You wouldn't have any reason to trust people you wouldn't have anything to base anything on true it'd be so hard to function in that situation it really would so that catalyst of being in this new world is also very interesting to see how he as a character reacts to it it is sort of tragic in a way you know because he is you know his trust is very hard one but yeah he just doesn't have the faith that um, spider-man or even spider-man and the other spider-mans are going to be able to have the chance to to get that box back and so instead of risking it he puts it all in on himself as as the loner that he is he's the only one he can trust someone who feels more comfortable handling things on their own because they don't trust others to to do it well or to be able to get along with them and i wonder if that's sort of that's part of why you know he keeps finding himself having such bad luck because he he does not get along with people and he does try to stay away from people and he keeps getting into trouble and there's not necessarily someone to help him and maybe it's sort of like this like vicious cycle and we sort of see that tragically in this movie that he ends up 
going his own way instead of getting assistance like Tom Holland's Spider-Man does from a myriad of people. Yeah. But he's scared and trapped and desperate. And then he ends up being, you know, sort of forcibly losing his powers before being sent home. It's it's sort of a sad arc for him. I think I think a lot of his life is very sad. Just um, yeah. from what we've seen, again, what we know of him already before this movie, it's just very sad. A sick daughter, uh, a failed marriage, in and out of prison, you know, this unintentional death of Uncle Ben on your hands. Yeah. You know, he's just a very tragic character. You know, he always has been. And I think this movie definitely reinforces and builds on that. It's it's very sad. Uh, but I, I mean, I will say, I do think he gets a few lighter moments in the movie as well that he's a little, I think he does play a little bit of comedic relief. I know he and Electro for a while have sort of a little bit of a banter going. That's kind of interesting to watch. I do love the moment where he goes in, sits down on the couch, gets sand on the couch. That's what I mean. Like, I'm like, oh, sorry. Tries to brush it off, but he's he's sand. There's just more sand. Yes, because sand, as um, we're well aware from uh, another Star Wars connection there, you know, we're all aware of Anakin's <laughs> feelings on sand from Attack of the Clones. So it's just... It gets uh, everywhere. You know. <laughs> Who can blame So yeah, him? I mean, yes, I think overall Sandman, his you know, trajectory is tragic and very sad, but... They do give him a few moments to shine. They give him a few comedic moments. They give him how he interacts with some of these other characters from the different universes. So it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. He's just a a big guy who just happens to be coarse and rough and irritating. And he gets everywhere. (laughs) But, well, that sort of brings us to another point here that he's always sand in this movie, which is very interesting. And on the one hand... You know, apparently Thomas Hayden Church wasn't on set for this film. You know, he seems unable to be able to take part physically for whatever reason. But like, obviously, there must be some sort of a story reason, too, because Mm -hmm. it's a story and he's saying the whole time. Yeah, I know for me, I sort of I sort of think of him like maybe being sand is sort of an expression of him always being on guard. That's what I was about. I think it's it's a defense mechanism almost like, I mean, he knows that. When he's sand, he's a lot more formidable. He's a lot tougher. It's a way to toughen himself up. You know, like different animals, they have their techniques of the peacock spreads its feathers or, you know, getting right. on your hind legs as if you're a bear. You know, he turns into sand. That's his way of posturing and saying, I think like, so. you know, don't, yeah. don't, don't mess with me. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think so. Because, you know, at the same time, he's, he's stronger and at the same time, like, untouchable. <laughs> There's a moment where uh, Peter tries to, like, so I high five him when he's sand and the, his hand just kind of like whoop, just kind of dissipates. So, yeah, I think that's a way to like, all, at least I interpret that as a expression of his distrust and always sort of being on edge, always sort of like being cautious, showing that, you know, hey, don't forget, I made a sand. <laughs> well, like we just said, sand, you know, and also too, just his personality more generally, coarse, irritating. Well, true. You yeah. know, just prickly. Sand is very jagged. Yeah, he reflects all that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, for Flint Marco, uh, life is a beach, let's say. But I hope you and I are as tough as Flint Marco, Uh-oh. because we'll have to play. We are who we choose to be. All right, here we go. A new world to conquer. The Goblin's favorite game has made it into this universe as well. Well, Peter, since uh, you took the first question in the last game, I think... I think I'll lead off our discussion this time around for this uh, for this wonderful game full of sadistic choices. Take it away. So, okay. <laughs> Uh-oh. You know, some of my questions in the past have focused a little bit on uh, what kind of job would you want to have in the workplace? I think I yeah. asked you last time if you would want to be in the Oscorp HR department after Norman's uh, 
Let's call them outbursts. <laughs> so my question this time around is is kind of similar to that. Okay. It's comparing the 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 Raimi verse with the Tom Holland verse, uh, for uh, lack of a better name. So, would you rather work as an assistant for J. Jonah Jameson at the Daily Bugle newspaper in the Raimi universe, or for his podcast slash internet show, or you know whatever type of venture this is in in the Tom Holland movies? Hmm. Um, based on what we've seen of Mr. Jameson in both in both settings. Which one of him would you rather have as the boss? Um, which one seems like the better boss to work for, I guess? Man, that's a good question. Or I guess which one is the worst? Wh- which one? The lesser of two Jamesons, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because we really haven't talked about Triple J too much. Um, I mean, certainly he's he's uh, quite the sourpuss in both worlds. Prickly, as ever. Man, something about him seems somehow kind of even smarmier in the the Watt world, yeah, rather than the Raimi verse, uh, like we haven't really yet gotten a moment where like he protects a photographer, for instance, or like realizes that he's printed something that's un that's definitely untrue, so he has mm-hmm. to print a re- retract yeah. it, yeah, right. So like we haven't really had a moment like that yet to really show the you know, there's some sort of moral core to this one, yeah. In the Raimi verse, he's definitely abrasive, rude, short tempered, but there is like a uh, there's like an honor, there's an honorability, there's a code of journalistic ethics that he really strongly adheres to, even if his newspaper is a bit on the sensationalist side. Yeah. He does seem like overall a relatively honest editor, an honest businessman. Um, he's just, you know, short-tempered, kind of, I think he's exasperated by the kind of people that work there. Yeah. Plus his wife is constantly calling in, uh, reminding him to take his medication, uh, you know, his anti-stress medication, which is um, having the opposite effect, as we've seen. So Yeah, he, he definitely needs to see his doctor. He he needs to get his doses checked. Well, the only professional that we know he trusts is his barber. So we, And I was going to say, <laughs> in in the MCU world, he doesn't even trust his barber. So he doesn't <laughs> trust anyone in the MCU world. So, yeah, he seems a lot, even more unhinged in, in the MCU. Plus, you know, it's just different. I mean, the rules are different. I feel like with, the old school newspaper world. I mean, there's a little bit more of this gentlemanly way of doing things versus in the the more cutthroat internet podcasting sort of world. There's just a lot less rules about how to be a professional in that setting. So now, I mean, for what it's worth, I know that J.K. Simmons has said that like he's aware that the filmmakers probably treat them as like very different characters. But as far as he's concerned, he's he's just playing the same character. He's playing it the same way as he would before. Yeah. Uh, it's just that he's running like a, a big media conglomerate instead of a, a newspaper. But yeah, there does just seem to be something. Well, we've seen more of JJJ in true, the true. originals. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I've seen a little bit more of that personality where I think I'd rather work there. I don't know. And there's something about maybe like the feel of a newspaper room to a yeah. newspaper office rather than his set or <laughs> his like basement studio or, or whatever, wherever he's broadcasting yeah. from. But man, he really had quite the upgrade. Like, he really benefited from that whole Spider-Man publicity. I mean, he got a helicopter. Yeah, that's... <laughs> he went from having like a basement basement studio to like getting a helicopter. <laughs> I mean, it, for what it's worth, I mean, he had no hesitation about telling everybody about the real identity of Spider-Man in uh, the MCU movies. You know, he had no hesitation to put um, a very young 16-year-old or 17-year-old at risk, a high schooler. Yeah. Um, he had no qualm about just what that would do to him. I feel like... Uh, Raimi versus Jameson. I don't, I don't know if he would do that. I know hmm. he wanted to expose Spider-Man, but I, I yeah. just don't know if he would. I have to wonder, like if Jameson had been on that 
train that Peter saved, if he had seen him lying on the ground with his mask off, I wonder what Jameson would have thought. I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's what I'm saying. It's like it's kind of an interesting question. And as I talked about earlier, it's interesting to see these characters kind of in the more modern setting. And MCU mm-hmm. versus Mr. Jameson is is definitely, you know, we could see a lot of um, what modern media would be like um, if he were involved in it. That is really true. Yeah, that is interesting to sort of transplant him into the modern world. And, the Ra- uh, the Raimi Jameson, I just wanted to say, kind of piggybacking on off of what you said, it's like he it just feels very old school because even the way he dresses, yeah, it's yeah. like a three piece suit. You know, he <laughs> wears the fedora still. It seems like. It's almost like he's caught like in the 19. 19- he does wear a fedora in the new one too, though. True. I feel like in the Raimi verse, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like he's from an earlier time and you know, you can tell that things are changing, but he still does things the old fashioned way. And I feel like that sort of would trickle down into the newsroom. It's a very top down culture. But, you know, as we as we've seen, there is like a there's a certain code. There's a certain sense of right and wrong that comes with that. So. Yeah, for what it's worth, in the Behind the Mask of Spider-Man, behind the scenes book, J.K. Simmons does say that, uh, you know, his portrayal of Jameson, he says, you know, quote, he's a good newspaper man in the old world sense, and in the 1960s was a big civil rights advocate. Hmm. And he treats people equally. He screams at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> like you were sort of saying, he seems like he's sort of stuck in this certain time period. He does seem to have like some sort of moral, moral fiber to him. And it sounds like, you know, Simmons also sort of, you know, intentionally portrays him like that as part of his, like, the backstory he's constructed yeah. in his mind for the character. It's so. just an interesting uh, comparison to see what he was like in the Raimi movies versus the more freewheeling or um, just more modern version of him in the, in the more recent stuff. Oh, yeah. So anyway, I guess the, all, all this is to say, which one would you choose? <laughs> if you had to work for one of them, which one would it be? Well, I think when it comes down to it, it's going to have to be Triple J from the Raimi films. Like I said, I think I know him a little bit better. I think I prefer the atmosphere of the the newspaper office. Oh, yeah. And I've seen like just a bit more of his character that I appreciate. So I think it's going to have to be the old flat top for me. No, I, I would I would choose that, too. I think, like you said, there's just something oh, yeah. kind of exciting about the old school metropolitan newsroom. Just, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it, like, I, like I've been saying, I think there's something kind of old school about the culture of the Daily Bugle in those movies in the in the Raimi trilogy, and I think it would be kind of fun to be a part of that. So, yeah, okay, for us both, it's going to have to be the good old Daily Bugle uh, of the Raimi world. And, and as a bonus, I mean, that newspaper office is in a pretty iconic building, the Flatiron Building, which is one of the very early skyscrapers of New York City. So that's kind of a cool, that's true, just yeah. a little bonus thing to think about. Um, it's kind of a neat, yeah, that is pretty neat, neat place to come to work every day. All right. Well, so All right. Now it falls to me to ask lay, you lay it on the me. sadistic choice. <laughs> I don't think there's any easy answer to this one, but Sean, would you rather run into the Green Goblin in a dark alley with or without his mask on? Hmm. How would you rather encounter the Goblin? Peter says don't go down any dark alleys, but you do. Well, how am I encountering him? Is he... I guess, like, what's the context of this encounter? If, if He's probably um, got something, some other agenda. He's probably like, waiting to spring on someone else. And you happen to be the wrong person to turn around this alley at the wrong time. You go down a dark alley, and there's... The Green Goblin. So would you rather run into him in full Raimi Goblin garb mm. or as we see him in the, the Watts movie with, you know, his his full freakish face exposed? Hmm. I, I, you know what? I, I'm just going to say I, I I know a lot of people criticize it, but I, I think that the, the original Green Goblin costume from Spider-Man 1 with just the Power Ranger suit, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, I think it's so iconic and so cool. I would rather see him in that. I'd be like, you know what? If I'm getting 
if this is this is how I beat my maker, at least I don't know. Like I think there's something. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to go down, at least go down at the hands of some maniac wearing this crazy flight suit and this grotesque mask. I mean, I don't know. Like I feel like I mean people people remember that. I mean I don't think anybody at that Unity Day festival will ever forget it. Yeah, I mean Aunt May. You know she remember. You know um, Rosemary Harris Aunt May, of course. The Mm -hmm. uh, you know from the Raimi movies. yeah, you know, she remembers very well the yellow eyes, those horrible yellow eyes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's something to be said about leaving an impression on people. <laughs> so At the same time though, I think like if I saw that face, his he has similarly like searing eyes. He does. You know, and that like it, it's scary. It's scary. Malicious smile. I don't know, I might be frozen to the spot if I if I saw that face in the darkness looking at me so maliciously. Yeah. In some ways, it'd be better for me to just see his weird helmet and be like, yeah, I think I'm just going to go the other way. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, think I'd probably be able to mentally process running into someone dressed up like that better with with, with the mask in the suit, I think. Uh, obviously, I would rather not run into the Green Goblin in any dark alley, yeah, no. no matter what he's wearing. I mean, if he was dressed as little Bo Peep from the Toy Story movies, <laughs> I, I still really wouldn't wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, he does look more cartoony in the original the original mask from Spider-Man 1. He, it is more outlandish, so maybe it, is, it wouldn't be as scary, or maybe that would make it scarier. I don't know. You know, How many people go in to rob a bank, they wear these crazy masks? It's part of this effort to just completely overwhelm your senses. Eh, good point. So, so it looks like we're both going to go with, we'd rather run into the Green Goblin down a dark alley with the mask, the classic look. Yeah. But sort of for different reasons. Like, you know... I think that the only way that my sanity in the moment would would stay with me is if there was something sort of like blocking me from seeing like the full frightful face yeah. of Norman Osborn in the throes of the goblin. I mean, that, that would be scary. But you think that'd be a cooler way <laughs> to uh, run into a supervillain, potentially meet your fate. Yeah, you know what? If you're a supervillain, give me the full supervillain treatment. I want the costume, the hey, give me the works, you know? Hey, that's fair. I respect that. <laughs> I respect that. So yeah, that, that's a that's a good question. I yeah, it was really... a sadistic one. That was definitely a sadistic one. Yeah, Norman Osborn is is a good. He's really good at coming up with that stuff or inspiring those kinds of situations. Whether he creates them or whether it's you and me trying to channel that spirit and uh, one upping each other with these uh, just these scenarios. <laughs> the little goblin juniors that we are. Exactly. And either way, <laughs> it's definitely been fun to revisit the Green Goblin um, in, in a little bit of detail mm-hmm. here. And it's been, it's been, like I said earlier, it's been a real treat to just to really reconnect with that character after so many years. It's been such, it's just been such a pleasure just to be able to do this, honestly, just <laughs> to, it, it, with such a timely movie, uh, just a perfect blend mm-hmm. of um, our childhood nostalgia plus uh, movies that are extremely popular and influential today. So it's been great to do that. And there's still plenty more to do. There's still so much to tell. Yeah, absolutely. No matter what universe we're in, there is always so much to tell. And as Stephen Strange told Peter One, the multiverse is a concept about which we know frighteningly little, but we're going to try to understand more of it in the next episode. Oh, well, and especially we have to talk about Doc Ock's nanotech. We have to talk about the branching timelines. And of course, we have to talk about the man himself, Peter Two. What's he been up to since we last saw him uh, doing Symbiote Night Fever in Spider-Man 3? <laughs> I know you can't wait to talk about that, Sean. So, we hope you're as excited as we are about Part 2. We hope everyone listening enjoyed this little dimensional hop with us. If you're looking for us in the Twitterverse, you just have to open a portal to SMTT Podcast. That's SMTT, as in So Much to Tell Podcast. But for now, Godspeed, Spider-Fans. Godspeed, Spider-Fans.
Alright, yeah. This was good. Yeah, we done good here. 